0: Greetings listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So one thing I was wishing for in the realm of Christmas music for years was an Arab strap Christmas album. And then Arab Strap broke up. And then they reformed temporarily. And, you know, I basically gave up hope that such a thing would ever happen. Um, The reason I wanted it, first of all, I I like Arab Strap. um, But also, I just thought it would be the unlikeliest Christmas album ever recorded. And this year, we got the next best thing. An Aidan Moffat Christmas album, which is called Ghost Stories for Christmas. And um, I'm going to go ahead and play two songs from that album um, in this podcast, but I'll save one for the end. um, Because it includes a version of Lonely This Christmas, which I played the Katie Tunstall version before so i'm going to play um the eight moffat version which is also superior to the original version by mud but you know still spins it in a slightly different uh a different direction it has less of the pristine sadness and more of the kind of lonely drunken sadness that you would expect from arab strap but why do i like arab strap um first of all if you haven't heard of Arab Strap and if you're Scottish, you pro- or if you're not Scottish, you probably haven't. Arab Strap were a Scottish post folk duo, um, from Falkirk, which is which they once referred to as the armpit of Scotland. Um, in fact, I think they're no longer allowed to return to Falkirk because they've talked so much shit about Falkirk. Um, but they that's where they're from. Uh. I don't want to say anything against Falkirk, but it doesn't have the reputation for being the nicest bit of Scotland. Um, whether or not that reputation is justified is not for me to to say, but they, they used to um, say all manner of nasty things about Falkirk when they were on tour, to the extent that they are now no longer welcome in their hometown. I believe they both live in Glasgow. Um, what's post folk? Well, they came out. The band came out in the nineties, and um, they made use of a lot of nineties music trends like dance music and sampling. I mean, they they used to go clubbing and dan- in Glasgow and stuff. So they were they were well into clubbing and dance music and stuff like that. On the other hand, they were steeped in traditional folk like scottish folk music and um another aspect of folk that's certainly relevant is the kind of bob dylan style folk where you you write songs about the the living world around you and give some sort of insight into it and what they what they were writing about was the experience of poor or working class people from uh industrial or post-industrial towns in scotland um, people who had very little or no educational and job prospects to look forward to and therefore kind of focused their energy on drinking, doing lots of drugs, and going out all night. Because that was basically the only pleasure that life would afford to them. The the picture that they paint of life in Scotland is often very distressing for people who aren't part of that uh that milieu or that community. Um once on a work trip to the Falkirk Wheel, as we were passing along the canal, we there was a, a group of uh teenagers sitting on the bank, uh drinking can after can of cheap uh, beer, probably tenants. And, um, you know, they decided to shout obscenities at us as we went past. And I mentioned that we were witnessing an Arab Strap song come to life. And for me, the the, the amazing thing about Arab Strap's music is that it's it's very... It's very blunt it uses a lot of uh, prosaic imagery a lot of profanity and yet it is it is still poetic and what it shows me is that uh, a group of people that you might be inclined to look down on a group of people that you might be inclined to be afraid of that you might be inclined to dismiss as the unwashed and the violent still have the same deep emotions that you do they are they respond to their environments in the same way that you would and that they have the souls of poets as well that however different you might think that you are really we're all <clears throat> we're all the same they have the exact same uh feelings and trials and tribulations so for me arab strap music although it puts a lot of people off always represents a reconciliation And, uh, yeah, that's, that's why I've been a a fan of it ever since I discovered it. Um, but it is challenging music. Um, first of all, it does, it does blend sometimes disparate genres. Aidan Moffat, um, doesn't have a natural singing voice. Of course, neither did Bob Dylan and people forgive forgive that. Um, and yeah, you know, the lyrics are, uh, are are sometimes kind of offensive or or blunt or or crude. Sometimes it's meant to be comic um and and often it lays bare the tragedy of a uh, working class life in uh the central belt of Scotland. So yeah, can you you can imagine that uh for Christmas. The the, the whole the whole album Ghosts uh Ghosts for Christmas is really good. Um, and I could have chosen one that more represents the uh, the Arab strap that I've been describing, the kind of crude and bluntness. But I've actually chosen one that's um, a little bit more uplifting. Um, and I had to put this one on because Colin had phoned in about the waitresses. And this song name, name checks the waitresses song. So I'm like, well, that's the one I'm playing on the podcast. So I'm going to play that one now. And then at the end of the episode, I'll close with uh, "Lonely, Lonely This Christmas."
1: Our longest night is and a son is born not the boy in a manger I mean the sun in the sky the light will return and our world again grows so let's toast the trees with cider and watch Doctor Who Man and volgends, angels need not bring the news. No, it's a haunting impression painted by memory as far.
0: was a Weihnachtsstimmung. <clears throat> That's a German word, by the way, which means Christmas mood. I have no idea why they put the title in German. Because Arab Strap are not German. But I understand it, so it works for me. Um, yeah, and a remarkably upbeat song. Um, which is not to say that Arab Strap never had any upbeat songs. Um, they did. Um, occasionally. <laughs> So, um, now that that segment is over, let's get into some call-ins. Hi, Alfred here. Um, just wanted to call in and say, I'm I'm enjoying the music episodes over December, um, for some reason, I got a bit of a weak spot for the East Seventeen one. I think I just heard it the most times, so uh, familiar when it comes on. But anyway, enjoying those. Um, also, really enjoyed the episode about the meta gaming. I think it was really interesting what you had to say. And um, it really made it come to life and made me think about what players would know of the surrounding areas and things like that. So I thought that was really interesting. So I think that was a really good episode. Been some really good episodes. Keep up the good work, and uh, speak to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks for that, Darren. Um, and I'm glad you're enjoying the the music. Um, <clears throat> when I first started uh, this approach, I was I was really worried that I was uh, going too far or something like that. But uh, um, I've got some good responses, and I guess anybody who isn't enjoying it just hasn't bothered to leave me a message. Um, fair enough. Um, yeah, I guess the, I guess the my feelings about about metagaming stem from the fact that for me, like my, my game of D and D is more game than story. Um, I know that there's a lot of discussion about how much story and how much game, um, should be, it should be in a game of D and D. And obviously that's, that's the kind of thing that has to be determined by each individual group. um, Too much story or story games and stuff often don't have a great reputation among the OSR because I think the impression is that story games don't involve character death and things like that. Um, I I guess for me, um, what I I get from D&D and what I want to get from it is the kind of challenge that comes from a game. So the gaming elements are very important to me. And that's why I'm not... Upset about players using whatever they have available in order to overcome a challenge, you know in the same way that like like I like cooperative board games like pandemic and stuff like that, and what I like about them is that you know each turn we all work together to try to see if we can come up with the optimal moves for everybody to make on that term or on that turn in order to succeed. And I, I kind of expect the same thing from my players when I'm running D&D. And that's one of the reasons that I run traps the way that I do, where it's, it's mainly resolved narratively, you know, where I describe what they see and then they ask questions and I answer them and eventually they come up with a, a, a method that they're going to use to bypass or disarm the trap. And it's not just the thief, it's everybody at the table contributes And that really that that's like that's a rocking good time for me, you know. I like to see everybody working together, trying out ideas, thinking laterally, you know, riffing off each other's ideas and stuff like that. Um, Then it becomes an event, you know. And other people might run a game of you know very differently. Um, I I recently read a blog that was criticizing critical role, which I never thought I would see because um I don't know. Critical role seems to have this kind of untouchable status, like this invincible status among uh, people who play D and D like you're like, you're only allowed to say good things about it. So the fact that somebody, you know, dared to write an entire blog post um, about how much he disliked critical role, I was like, Oh my God! I wouldn't want to get his hate mail. Um, but one of the things he pointed out was, um, well, he 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 called this amateurish, but he was complaining about the extended role play segments of Critical Role, especially when the players are just interacting with each other in character. And you know that will go on for like an hour. They'll just sit around and talk to each other in character, not even to an NPC. And he he made the point is that this would never happen at a normal D&D table. And you know, I think he's he's right about that. Like I It's not that I would bar that from happening at my table, but I've just never seen players do that in real life. Um even players who enjoy role playing and speaking in character they will want to get to the next bit of the adventure the next piece of action um cuz you know we've all got limited time you know um so we don't want to we don't want to spend half the night not doing anything other than developing our characters um it's it's really only critical Role that i've seen in real you know that that does that um and that puts me in mind of a recent episode of the Red Dice Diaries where uh it's another one where where John and his uh his friends are discussing a topic and this time they were discussing downtime and they began by trying to define downtime and somebody proposed that downtime is what happens in between plot <clears throat> and then somebody else amended that and said I would agree but I would change plot to action and I really liked that distinction, because d and d can have lots of plot elements that don't happen at the table, for instance, if you have a big bad in your world who's got some some scheme um you might be tracking events. That the players are not aware of because they they probably won't even be interacting with that big bad or even be aware of that big bad at lower levels. But you might be, since you know the full story, you might be saying, well, so because they've done this, my big villain will be doing this and you never even have to mention it because the, <clears throat> the players wouldn't wouldn't be aware of it. I think, you know, I'm sure some people do tableaus where they like I'm going to give you a little image of, you know, what the bad guy is doing and stuff like that, but I don't do that. Um if it, if it's something the players couldn't know or couldn't see, then they don't know that, you know. We don't we don't go and have scenes that just involve what the bad guys doing. So really the, the, the action, the, the business of what happens at the table is really about action and it's not necessarily combat and action, but it's, if it doesn't involve the players having some kind of choice to make, then you, you know, you don't really need to do it at the table. And, uh, I think that's a real important part of the structure of a role playing game you know, every every medium for telling a story has its own rules, like its own laws of physics, and the way that D and D tells a story, it tells a story through the choices that the player characters make. And therefore, if you're not doing something that involves a player character choice, you can skip it. I've been reading The White Hack recently, and um, I have mixed feelings about The White Hack as, on the whole. One thing about it is it has a lot of discussion. For, for a short rule set, it has a lot of discussion of game theory. And I read a lot of game theory, and a lot of it is what the British would call much of a muchness, meaning that everybody's all kind of saying the same thing. So a lot of times I do get to the point where I'm like, yeah, I've heard all this before. But there are some things the white hack spells out that I think people either, either if they know it, they take it for granted and never say it, or if it has, because nobody says it, it might not have occurred to some people. And one thing that <clears throat> one of my favorite examples of this is they're talking about adventure hooks and about starting an adventure, and he says, if, uh, if the adventure. <clears throat> if the adventure hook of what you're running doesn't involve the players making a choice, you can skip it. And I can't I, I I can't remember anybody else stating that so bluntly, but it's absolutely true. Anytime the players are not making a choice, you don't need to you don't need to have that at the table. You know, people complain sometimes about shopping trips about you know the characters going to town and then they they spend the next hour going from shop to shop spending their gold on this and that why would characters do that you know why because every every purchase is a player choice and if 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 you as a game master feel your players are spending too much time shopping ask yourself whether you've given them enough choices to make elsewhere in the campaign because it could be that they they suddenly have a space where every single thing is up to them. You know, they ask what's for sale and then they, they can make a choice whether they want to spend their gold on that or not. But that's, I mean, a shopping choice is pure player choice. I mean, the only control you have as a game master is whether the item is available and how much it costs. Um, so you know, I personally don't mind shopping trips. Um, also, I believe I believe that players ought to be properly equipped before they go do something dangerous. And if they buy too many things, it's a good time. It's a good opportunity to enforce encumbrance rules. But I know some people don't like it when players spend half the session buying stuff. But it occurred to me recently that one of the reasons that players might do that is because it's a it's an opportunity. To make a lot of decisions. A lot of choices. And sometimes. some The way some adventures are run. Or the way some game masters run their game. Sometimes doesn't give the players enough choice. And I'm going to go ahead and agree with Matt Finch on here. That it, the game is all about player choice. That's the unique selling point. Of Dungeons and Dragons. And of any similar type of role playing game. Is player agency. Um, I really like. I really like video games. I like horror survival video games, and I really like the Silent Hill series. Um, But a good illustration of the failing of video games is there, there was a, one of the, one of the Silent Hill um, games that took place in a, an abandoned hospital that was creepy as hell. And I opened a door and there's a long corridor of other doors, like, Basically just lots of rooms. And I was looking for something. I don't remember what the hell it was. And the hosp- like the, the corridor was dark and scary looking. And there were all these doors. And I thought, oh crap, I'm going to have to look in all of those doors. And I had no idea what was going to jump out at me from them. But I tried the first door. Oh, it's locked. It appears like it won't open. I tried the second door. It's locked. It won't open. I'm like, oh, I get it. The only one, The only one that will open is the one I'm supposed to go in. You know, in D terms that would be a railroad. Or you just wouldn't do it. If you built that area in your dungeon, you would have to put something in all of those rooms, even if that something was effectively nothing. But the uh the the designer or programmer of this game just said, um, any room that we don't have that, that there's nothing for you to do, we'll just make the door locked and you can't get in it. So it was a little bit more funnily, you know. And I actually didn't mind that so much because hey, that's how video games work. Plus, I didn't want to spend any more time in this corridor than I want than I had to because it was really creeping me out. Um and it turns out the unlocked room was scary enough. Like I think I had to reach into this hole in the wall and something grabbed my hand and, you know, um the first time I didn't pull it out in time and my hand got ripped off and I had to respawn and so but yeah d and d because the game engine, which is the game master, is a living person who is there at the table and can respond to the player choices in real time. The theory is that you can do anything and the game will respond to you in a more or less realistic way, so that's like that's the that's the key to to a role playing game is that you can do anything that you want. You know, you can make any choice. And uh, the trade-off is that, you know, you don't have great graphics and stuff. You have to use your imagination. I mean, even if you're using uh, really well-made, well-painted minis in that expensive terrain from Dwarven Forge and stuff, which, you know, that stuff looks awesome. But it's still not as realistic as, you know... What what they're doing with video games these days, and I know that there are some more sandboxy video games. Obviously, uh, Red Dead Redemption Two has just been released, so. But there's always a limit to what a video game can accomplish because somebody has to program it and then send it out into the world, and, you know, at some point they have to say, "Well, I've put in as much as I can. That's it, finished." Whereas a game master can always respond to the choices a player makes in real time. So, I mean, worst case scenario is you say, okay, let's take a five or ten minute break and I'll figure out what happens next, you know. So, yeah, the the plot points in a game of D&D, the, the ones that are experienced in real time are always going to be action points. And by that I mean opportunities for the players to make a choice and anything that doesn't involve a player making a choice probably doesn't need to doesn't need to be role-played at the table having said that um in the case of critical role when i used to watch it i don't watch it anymore but when i used to watch it the the bits where they were role-playing with each other tended to be the most interesting bits for me because i found that critical role combat just dragged on and on and on um ugh. i my i basically i would just tune out my mind would wander and then i would just check back in when it seemed to be over to find out who won and it was always the party so so it just really bored me so actually the only interesting bits to me were the uh, the role playing bits but but yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't run a game like that at my table. So now I have no idea whether the proceeding was coherent or interesting at all. But moving right along, um, something I've been meaning to do um, in my last two podcasts, but I ran out of time. Uh, Joe the lawyer, if you've been following his podcast, has been doing. Um, what he calls Gary Gygax, what the fuck isms. And it's basically you go through the, the, the first edition dungeon master's guide and pull out some rule or wording or something that makes you go, what the fuck? Either because the rule was never invoked because it turns out quite a lot of people played uh first edition AD and D in a simplified version that uh, that just simply ignores or modifies some of the obscure and complex rules. Um, or they never knew about the rules because they didn't buy the, the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, personally, I, re- I, re- I really like AD&D First Edition, but I would run it probably through one of the streamlined retro clones. Or, frankly, I might just... Run Swords and Wizardry complete, shift the armor class by one, and add in the AD&D spells that aren't in, in Swords and Wizardry, because there's no need to go through all that rigmarole. For example, I have no intention of ever running combat using segments. That's just way too much tracking. Um, I don't think that would be fun for me or anybody else. But anyways, there is one... When he when he mentioned this, and he's inviting people who listen to his podcast to do their own, uh, what the fuck ism? And there was one that I thought of right away. So this is on page seventy of the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Important note regarding two hit adjustments: certain spells, such as Curse, Prayer, and Protection from Evil, adjust the chance. To hit of either the attacker or the defender or both such changes must and must is in all caps be made to the armor class of the figure concerned not to the dice score rolled in attacking so what he's saying is if you cast a a spell that buffs or nerfs your to hit roll don't actually buff or nerf the to hit roll buff or nerf the armor class of the target so if, instead of buffing the attacker, nerf the armor, nerf the defender, and vice versa. And he, he is absolutely convinced, Gary Gygax is absolutely convinced that there is an appreciable difference between doing one or the other. That um, nerfing the target's armor class by two is inherently different than buffing the attacker's to hit roll by two. And he will explain it as follows. An inspection of the combat tables will show that the dice roll progression will make some opponents hit proof, and that's in caps or in italics, if the dice rolls are adjusted downwards rather than the armor class being moved upwards. And then in parentheses or round brackets, at some point the upwards armor class adjustment could also make such opponents virtually invulnerable, but this is less likely and not necessarily undesirable. First of all, what the hell is he talking about? Is he saying that... Is he is he saying that you don't want the player characters to ever be hit-proof? But it's okay if the monsters are hit-proof. And if so, what the fuck? I mean, I'm all for making it challenging, but I think... I I, re- I really think the characters always need a chance, you know, a slim chance, sure, and and certainly they should suffer consequences of poor decision making, but I mean, there are plenty of monsters that are practically invulnerable as it is, you know. Um, I, I once rolled a white on a random encounter table because I was using something like the ready ref sheets or something as written and you know, first level party with no magic weapons effectively cannot fight a white. First of all, they take one hit and they're dead from the level drain and the white can't be hit at all by non magic weapons. And first level characters don't have magic weapons and being undead, a white is immune to sleep and charm which, it, which are the spells that first level wizards have. So there's no magic missile in white box. So, you know, basically like a random encounter determined, determined a party wipe. I actually just rerolled that encounter because it's like, no, that there's no chance. Like a difficult encounter is one thing. A literally un, undefeatable encounter is another. So then Gary Gagax gives an example. A reverse bless, a curse, is cast upon all opponents. Therefore, the effective armor class of the side which casts the spell will be raised by one category so that a figure normally of armor class 4 will be treated as a 3, a 3 as a 2, etc. Remember, this is descending armor class. So, so basically, he's saying the, the way that you do this is somebody casts curse upon the other side. That means the side that cast curse their armor class all goes down by one, meaning it's one better. By doing so, it is still possible for the opponents to roll natural 20s and thus score hits. Let's look at the wording of um, Bless Curse. So, upon uttering the Bless spell, the caster raises the morale of friendly creatures by plus one. Furthermore, it raises their two-hit dice rolls by plus one. A blessing, however, will affect only those not already engaged in melee combat. This spell can be reversed by the cleric to a curse upon enemies, which lowers morale and to hit by negative one. So that although the wording says lower the dice roll, in the Dungeon Master that comes from the Player's Handbook, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, Gary Gygax says, "Don't lower the dice roll. Do the do the opposite to the armor class instead." And. By the maths, you would say that it amounts to the same thing. So looking at the attack matrix, and I'm going to use the one for clerics because it is a cleric spell. Bless is a cleric spell. Um, So let's say that, yeah, you... uh, a, a, A cleric reversed... Like, a reverse blessed you or cursed you. So you're... And we're going to do this to the die roll. We're going to nerf your die rolls by negative 2. So you have a negative 2 modifier on your on your attack roll. So here's the thing about the, uh, the um, attack matrix, is that a first-level cleric or druid or monk rolling a natural 20 will hit armor class 0, which is expected. They will also hit armor class negative 1, negative 2, negative 3, negative 4, and negative 5. They only need a 21 to start hitting negative 6. And then it's, you know, um, 22 hits negative 7, 23 hits negative 8, 24 hits negative 9, and 25 hits negative 10. So, if you rolled a natural 20 and you had to nerf that by 2 down to 18, it means that you still hit armor class 2. So... First of all, how often are you actually at first level or fighting something that does have armor class 0? And also, I mean, I don't know, so what? And I guess if the party reversed it... Um, so armor class 2 is plate and shield, isn't it? That's like about as good as it gets for uh, for a first level character. So are you are you saying that a party might like a party might cast curse on the enemies and then uh anybody with armor class 1 or 0 becomes unhittable how many party members are going to have armor class 1 or 0 and it only lasts 3 combat rounds anyway So I'm still not really sure what the problem is but The wording that he uses, it will still if you if you adjust the armor class instead of the to hit rolls, it will still be possible to roll natural twenties and then score an automatic hit. He's assuming two things. He's assuming that a natural twenty is always a hit, which, I mean, yeah, it is up to armor class negative five, so that's that's pretty good, but. He's also assuming that a natural twenty isn't a natural twenty if it has to be modified. and I guess like the way that we use natural twenties now is that a natural twenty, regardless of any modifiers, you know has a special effect that when that when you roll twenty on the d twenty, regardless of what you add or subtract to it, it counts as that twenty and I guess that I guess that wasn't the case in a D and d that a natural twenty wasn't a natural 20 if it wasn't modified and that probably to be honest that probably comes from the descending armor class system which is that you never thought of it as a modified dice roll it's just that at level one you needed a 20 to hit armor class zero and if you were cleric at level four you only need an 18 You know, so you're not saying that you're you're not thinking of it as applying dice rolls or applying modifiers to the dice rolls. Therefore, when a spell applies a modifier to a dice roll, the assumption is that your 20 is no longer a 20. It's either 22 or 18, depending on whether the modifier was plus or minus. So I don't know. It gave me pause because I was approaching it from a different historical perspective, and it's like, well, I don't see what why one makes the you know, why it makes a difference. But I guess Gary Gygax's assumption is is that a modified like a, a twenty with an, a magical modifier on it is no longer a twenty. Whereas the way we use the natural twenty mechanic now is that when you roll twenty on the die, something special happens, regardless of what you were gonna do to that die roll. Um but it also shows that he changed his mind about that between writing the Player's Handbook in nineteen seventy eight and uh, writing the Dungeon Master's Guide in nineteen seventy nine. That he's like, oh wait, I screwed up. I should have said that it modifies the armor class, and you know. And this was a thing I, I called in once to Larry uh, Hamilton's uh, podcast about all the comp- all the the complicated dice mechanics that are in AD and D, and how you know similar things. Um, End up having completely different dice mechanics to resolve them, and my impression was that whenever Gary Gygax thought of a new way to do something, he implemented the new way, but he didn't go back and change it so that it was so that um, previous uh, situations were resolved in the same way. So, like when he discovered percentile dice, he started using percentile dice to do a, a certain thing, but he didn't go back and change. All the, all the other mechanics to be based on percentile dice. And this is sort of a similar thing maybe that he's like, well, wait a minute, if we modify the dice rule, then something bad might happen. So we should actually say that it modifies the armor class, but he didn't go back and actually change the wording. And I mean, you know, the, the book was only published a year before. We're not going to pulp all those printings and then come out with a a new edition, but it is, it does create, it It literally creates a, a contradiction so that if you're running AD and D and you're taking the spell wording from the player's handbook and you're not using that paragraph from the dungeon master's guide, then you're doing something different than somebody who is using the dungeon master's guide. I don't know. That's why AD and D it sounds more complicated than it needs to be. But, you know, apparently a lot of people just ignored this stuff if it didn't make a sense or, or you know, if they didn't buy the Dungeon Master's Guide, they'd never have been the wiser. So that's my what the fuck. And that was actually, I think that was literally my first what the fuck um, from reading the Dungeon Master's Guide back in the day. So, anyways, that's longer than I intended to make this episode, so I'm going to call it... um. Until next time, play well, let the dice fall where they may, and here is Aidan Moffat singing Lonely This Christmas.
1: When you and I were here And we never thought there'd be an end And I remember looking at you then And I remember thinking that Christmas Must have been made for us Cause darling This is the time of year That you really need love And when it means so very much So it'll be lonely this Christmas.